You need notes. They're going to hand that to you. Let me run through several things. Let's see. I'm not going to do trivia stuff just to get started because I have a lot of, of pictures here. Usually my slides are about 35 to so for a presentation. This morning I have 200. Uh, so we're going to get done early even before noon uh, as far as what we're doing. I really, I struggle with, t- with today's ministries uh, for this morning. The reason I struggle is this is really important stuff, but it's almost like, wait a minute, it's, you know, it's, it's so basic, both the message and what we're doing here, and yet what we're talking about is very important foundationally to build up to where we want to be going. And so I need to back up because it's very important because some of you may not know some of this information in this class, and that's very few, but the majority of you do. Be patient with me as we just build and we're, we're kind of gearing up and building up towards a purpose here over these next few weeks with items. If you, uh, if you weren't with us last week, we started with a, ta- a challenge. We're talking about what do we do, why do we do what we do as a church, and part of that goes all the way back to when we started. Let me, let me f- f- explain some of that, but first of all, just go back to the basic question. Um, when, we, when we gather together, why do we do certain elective classes in Sunday school? There's a reason why we do that. This next six weeks we aren't, but why do we do that? We have a purpose. We have a plan. We have a design. Why do we rotate our teachers? We have a purpose. We have a plan that seems to fit within the philosophy of what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to do. And it all goes back to the idea of our understanding of a church. And we said last week that what we understand from scriptures is that the word that is used in scripture for church, ecclesia, the most commonly used term, there is another one that shows up twice, uh, that they give us a description. They give us an idea about what is going on and what is happening in that area. And Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 16 before it even started. Jump down into the text. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said, blessed are, this is when he's saying to the disciples, who do people to say that I am? And he, and Simon says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus in verse, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus mentions the concept of church before it's even there, before it's in existence. In fact, if you go another two chapters over, he'll say the same thing in Matthew chapter 18 when he's instructing the disciples. In Matthew chapter 18 about how to deal with a conflict, you go to Matthew 18 verse 15. If your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he doesn't hear you, then you take one or two more with you that in the mouth of witnesses things may be established. Then verse 17. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. At the time that Jesus is ministering, there is no church. The, uh, what's functioning is the temple. And so until uh, the Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, there isn't the entity called church in existence, but Jesus is planning for it and preparing for it. Well, what we have are the terms that show up in Scripture that talk about it, and they give us an idea that as we just do, a, you know, we mentioned this last week, an overall study that the majority of references for church in the New Testament talk about a local group or local groups. We understand that there is this body, the family of Christ, but most all the references are referring to one here, you know, like in this area on 22nd Street, one that could be across town on 8th Avenue, one that could be, and you can put different areas and different towns up in Hershey or down in Myerstown or in Lancaster, that there are churches that are what Jesus had in mind, those local entities getting together for the 
benefit of helping individuals out. And we made these comments that, that a description or a definition of a church is very simple. It is a group of born-again baptized believers who are voluntarily united together so as to do God's business. Last week we ended up with saying, what is God's business, which I want to develop next week. God's business is, is fourfold. By saying it's the bride, we just use the idea of the W-I-F-E, the wife. There's worship, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism. That's going to be what we're preaching on the next few weeks in the morning service to just help us to all be in pace and to be focused again and some ideas that we can introduce to you in accomplishing those purposes. The big question is when did this all start? Okay, We're talking now the idea of church it was all the way back in eternity past that it started in the mind of God. We read in Ephesians where it says that God who created all things in his mind had the idea that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. God had designed this idea. It wasn't implemented until the book of Acts, but it was designed and its purpose is to display God, to portray God. If you look in the front of our bulletins, that is one of our themes. That what we want to do is display God. How do we do that? We magnify the maker by mimicking the master. The idea is that we want to magnify God, which was his design. That was his purpose for church. And so that idea was in his mind, but it didn't come into being until after the book of, or into the book of Acts, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Though he talked about it, some, some theologians would put it this way. It was in embryonic form. It was in the womb of God's mind, and it was birthed then at Pentecost. And so Jesus talked about the idea of church. He talked about organization. Even in the idea of church discipline and instruction and, re, and trying to recover somebody, he talked about how he was going to build it up. And so he even instituted the idea of the ordinances that were there that he talked about that, uh, that are further developed and explained in the book, uh, in the epistles. But he talked about it when he, at the communion. He talks about when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Baptism in the Great Commission. So he was planning these things and had it in his mind, though the disciples didn't know how it would play out until it happens that the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, now we have a new type of an institution that is going to be involved with worship and helping people. It's called the local church. And so with that in mind, the church is expanding. It's growing. We get the history of the church. Now, where I stopped last week was talking about our history, which gives a little bit of background background to why we started and what we're doing and where we've come from. A number of you weren't here when we started the church back in 1979. The church was organized in September of 1979 as Faith Baptist Church, but it had been a group of people had been meeting before that time. In fact, a group of people started working and getting together in 1974 and they wanted to. There was a local man here that had a burden for the community and he had been trained in the ministry, had been in the ministry in the past, he came back to his hometown community and wanted to start a church. So he started a group and got them together, and it was called Tabernacle Baptist Church. It was organized, and they met there right on 422, that old building that most of you have passed by dozens and dozens of times in a period of a week or a month. And they got, they bought that building. They bought it in '74 for seventy thousand dollars. Right next door was the Agway uh, facility when it was still there. Now it's just an empty lot. <clears throat> and they bought that, and they started building things up. In fact, things, they did a great job. They saw people saved. They were very evangelistic, very concerned about uh, reaching the community, and things were going really well in that sense that they built it up to, according to the records, up to about 200, 225 people. 
Then they even started a Christian day school. They started a Tabernacle Christian Academy, and uh, it was meeting in the basement of that, of that institution. But then they ran into some hard times. There were some difficulties. There's all different types of stories of what happened. But the work basically imploded. And so it went down in numbers drastically over a period of a couple of years. And uh, there was two, if not three, different pastors that within about a two-year period, it just dwindled. And things did not go well. And uh, the school, they were going to close the school, but then uh, a fellow pastor from across town, Bob Mayer, some of you remember Dr. Mayer, he came over and said that we'll take the school, we'll put it into their church, so open door, uh, took the school, the, all the, the curriculum, things like that, and they kept the school going, which then eventually became Lebanon Christian Academy. And uh, so they, got, they took that part. But then there was a lot of, there came to a point where there were some real difficulties within the body. Um, in fact, there was lawsuits being threatened between the membership and the leadership, and it got very ugly. Um, some things went into the newspaper, and they, it, it became a real tragic situation through all of that, that the testimony of Christ got, got kind of taken through the, uh, through the street. In fact, I remember when we came up, we were, I was doing door-to-door calling up on Oak Street, and, um, and uh, three doors in a row, I ran into the people said, oh, you're the church that was in the newspaper. You're the church that's in the newspaper with all the... So it, it, things went really south for a period of time. And uh, there was the consensus by, by some of the leadership that they wanted to close the door, but then some of the people didn't want to close the door. So eventually what happened is the, the remaining pastor who had been there at that time, uh, seeing it in, in its, most of its decline, he resigned and there was left just uh, you know, 18 or so people that were attending the church. And they wanted to keep it going. So they contacted a church down in Lansdale where several of us had gone to seminary. They contacted down there, Dr. E. Robert Jordan. They said, can you help us out? We're a struggling church. We want to keep this thing going. And so he started sending up in October of 1978, he started sending up a variety of staff members and students to come up and fill the pulpit. And so that was going from October, November, December. And in uh, early February, one of the senior students was Dave Burgraff, and they asked him if he wanted to be put on the schedule to come up and preach. So he said yes, and uh, at that time Dave looked a little bit different. He was a little bit younger. Um, and so Dave came up, and the first Sunday that he was going to come up to fill the pulpit, his wife and, uh, and one of the kids were sick, so he asked if I would come up. So we came up on February 2nd, I believe it was, in 1979, and we came up for a Sunday morning service and uh, met a number of those people, had lunch with them because everybody would stay around and have lunch. And, uh, and so we had that fellowship. And in the evening, we're headed back, the two of us are driving back to Lansdale, and we're talking about, you know what? They keep, they've said down at school that they could use a variety of somebody if somebody wanted to come up on a regular basis. And so Dave said, I could get some preaching practice, and you could come along, and you can start working with youth, and maybe you can learn how to do some song leading. And we could come up, and we could, this would be good training for us in our seminary years. So our uh, ideas, we went back to the church that evening. We mentioned to them that maybe we'll be able to come back. We went back to seminary, and the two of us volunteered to come up on weekends. And so the seminary folks said, hey, this is easier than getting somebody every week. Why don't the two of you go up? And that'll cover and so we started coming up that February, and by April, they asked Dave if he would be their pastor. 
And so he agreed. And uh, we, we came, Deb and I kept on coming up. He and his family ended up moving up that in May or June right after he graduated. They came up and got a house. And then uh, we, were, we were doing church. And we, from that calling, it was during that summer that we did the calling where I was saying it was doing door-to-door calling. And, and uh, there was a reputation in the community that... You know, deserved or undeserved, that's not the point. The reputation was in the community. And so we came to a point that said, listen, we need to do something different. We need to get a fresh start here because there's this albatross of a, of a reputation that we need to unload. And so we uh, decided that what we would do is basically dissolve the church under Tabernacle Baptist and all of the financial issues, things like that, try to resolve them. And, and then we would refocus and we we reconstituted to, uh, to what we thought was a better polity for the church. And so we reconstituted, renamed the church, and then we ran a full-page ad that basically said, new church, new pastor, new mission. And we started Faith Baptist Church. And we got that, and we started having regular ministries that were going on. We did the church things. This is Larry and Audrey getting married. Uh, Blauks. We did picnics. Some of you will see yourselves in some of these pictures, and you will not be pleased with me. Um, there's our children's pastor standing there. Uh, a variety of the different, the different things that we did. And so one of the ministries that we opted to do back then was, let's, let's, if we're going to build a church, let's reach into children's and teen ministries. And let's use them, because if we can reach into the youth, we hopefully will be able to bring in families. So we started what was called Operation Teenager. Back then, it was okay to call yourselves Yankees and Rebels, and it didn't have conflict over the flag and things of that sort. This was in the early 80s. So we started, you can tell by the attire on some of this. Um, so we started these teen activities, and we did these ministries during the summer that every week we would, we would get together and play all kinds of games in the front lawn of that church. And uh, the, we're, we're on the bank of the church, and right to the right of this picture is 422, down that steep slope. And I remember a number of times, I would go out and buy like three or four volleyballs every week because during the game, they would go over the hill. And I remember one time, there's a brand new one. I opened it, and they hit it just once. It went down the bank. I ran towards the bank, down towards the highway to get it, and the ball is bouncing, and this guy in a motorcycle comes by. It bounces in his lap, and he just smiled and kept on going. So we had, we had you know, different things. We, we did things that just make no sense to me now. We didn't have enough property to play games, so we would load up the kids in the back end of pickups and uh, in this two-hour segment, and we would drive pickups full of kids in the back end, waving flags, doing this over to Coleman's Park, and back again, they'd play baseball or softball over there and come back as part of the activities. You would never do that today, right? Yeah, and so we did these things that, that happened, and then uh, after we were going, it, that was in 79, 80, 81. In 81, then they opted. We were growing enough that they said, let's have an assistant. So I became the assistant to Dave. And around that same time then, what we did is in 84, in 83, we bought this property. This is looking, this is standing out there uh, about where the bushes are in front of the cross and looking this direction. Okay, we're looking into the field. And there was nothing here at all, uh, obviously, at that time. So we went out, bought the, we had a church group about that size, because you couldn't fit this many people in that old building. We decided to build here. And uh, so we built this property, and we started in, in 83 building it. We finished the, the building in 84 and dedicated it in, 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 I believe it was March or April of 84. If some of you don't know, this is the, fam- the present family center. That was our auditorium. And it was terracotta, 
Everybody called it the burnt church uh, because it had that look. And so looking from front to back, where the kitchen is now, that was our baptistry. And the, the only thing when we built this, the only thing we brought over, which we brought over from that building on 422, were these six lanterns that are hanging here. And uh, so we started the church and going. And by that time, it was okay. It's, you know, we built an auditorium that could seat like 445 people. We were about half that size. We hired a secretary, Gloria Hoover was the secretary for three or so decades working here at the church. I left uh, in uh, August of that summer and went to start another church. And so a few months after I left, I hired Earl Binkley to be the new assistant to work with my brother. And uh, Earl was there. And then, then a few months later, a, a year and a half later or so, then they also hired a third man, and that was Dan Trotman, who had grown up in here as far as the sense of in his spiritual life. He had rededicated his life, gone off to Bible college and seminary. And so then Dan uh, became the next assistant. So there was my brother, and there was two assistants. And uh, then around that, that time... Uh, my brother had opportunity to go and work on his doctorate, and so he opted to leave. And January 1st of 1987, they had asked if I would come back and consider being the senior pastor from the work that I had started. And so I came back, and so there was Earl, Dan, and I were the staff. And uh, we kept ministries going. And around these times, we started writing a variety of different materials that we incorporated into the ministry. We did a lot of church picnics and a lot of different activities and things of that sort. Um, we... Uh, did things on-site, off-site, and then we started building. There's Miss Sharon. She's grown up. Um, we did choir. Uh, the bald head is my head. I used to lead the choir, which was a mistake. Um, but we, we just did what we needed to do, and I started writing Calvary Club material, and so we started that ministry around that time, which many of you are familiar with, Mr. Ashby uh, teaching. I think that's Travis Ulrich, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there you go, John Hitz and Adam Ulrich right in the front. They look enthused and excited. Uh, Justin, I think that's him right behind there, right in this very center. And uh, so you can start picking out the different people that several of us have changed drastically over the years. And so we did the Calvary Club programs and continued doing the teen ministries and doing the same operation, teenagers here on site to reach into the community evangelism. And uh, those things were good. And then we decided that, well, hey, let's do camp. So we rented out other facilities and we did camps. We even combined camps, the elementary age, all the way through the senior high together at a couple different camps that we did. And so we ran camps off-site and uh, did a variety of different events and different things like that. We not only did the camps, then we started into vacation Bible schools. And we thought this would be a cool thing to do. Pat Casey came on staff and he had his doctorate in in children's ministry, and he said, hey, I've got a format for a vacation Bible school, and it was phenomenal. And so if I'm not mistaken, this is our very first one, if I'm, if I'm thinking right. And that would have been back in the, uh, about 89. And uh, we just, we adopted these things and did these thematic different, different Bible schools and continued doing them as the years went by, and they became a real tool. I have no idea what we were doing in our minds. Why we brought horses on site and gave kids horse rides, I don't no. I do know today you would never get away with the insurances. Okay, Why we had go-karts set up out front during Bible school. I, I, I remember once, years ago, that during a teen camp, I had the brainstorm that said, let's get go-karts and let's let the kids, let's set up a go-kart obstacle out front. And so we brought in a trailer load of hay, 
we set up a go-kart course for the te- we were going to let the teens run go-karts for the week of camp for an activity and so we got the go-karts we put them out there and the preacher boy said let's try them they needed to test them out and so after I saw one of the preacher boys flipping up over end over end out on the front lawn because he went a little bit too fast around the corner and then another one flipped another one because he went a little bit too fast, it was guys were taking it all down. And they said, we spent the whole day and it was like, we are not putting teenagers. If you guys can't control yourself, imagine what it, we were just so dumb. Um, still are, but it was amazing the stuff that we did. So we did VBSs, we did the camp. Camps. Remember the chickens that we used to do? Some of you were so excited you wanted to wear this chicken outfit. We would get teens would sign up for the week. They wanted to be in this chicken outfit. And as soon as they'd walk in the room, what did the little, little kids do? Scream and holler. And the teens would get closer and closer to them and say, Get away, get away, big chicken. And uh, the, the part that we never understood is after you wear this, what happens? It gets really sweaty. And it's really gross. And then another one would smile and put the same outfit on. And it's like, oh, yeah. But um, we did mystery rooms, some of you remember. And so we started that, that up in the top right-hand corner. That is, this is at the back of the property. In the top right-hand corner is what we call the East Hall. And it has the basement. That was our first addition to the property. And so we did that uh, in the early 90s. And we built on because we needed classroom space. And so that was done. And that used to be wide open up above. Uh, now it's all multi-classrooms. And uh, so uh, we, then we got in the idea that it was just, let's do missions conference. So our first missions conferences were not as, um, what do I want to use, not as visually challenging as what they, what they are now and stimulating. Then we started doing missions trips. We thought, let's go out and let's take work teams and start doing missions trips. And we took some of you out and we built, a, we built homes out there. That whole, that, all those walls were put up in that one week of missions trips. And then we said, okay, this would be great. Let's take teens on missions trips. So we started taking the teens on a variety of different places. In some places we would go, we would do the Bible schools. We went out to Minnesota, went to West Virginia, went to Florida, went to a variety of places that started that ministry of what we call TNT and uh, we, I wrote that ministry after Dave Anderson left so that we could just rally and say let's start doing um, with the teens something that would merit them doing these ministries uh, during the course of the year and then get involved and go and do it uh, on site somewhere else. We went down to Philadelphia. Um, I'll never forget this one. We had a group of teens down there. We're in the inner city of Philadelphia. And see where that tarp is down at the bottom? That's our shower. Because there was no indoor plumbing to drain anywhere. So we put that shower outside, and we had a tarp out there. And on a windy day, the tarp would fly up. And so it flew up on a couple, couple times when people were doing showering. And across the street were three old ladies... And I walked out one time, and the tarp was flying, and they said, That's okay, let it fly! Okay. I was like, okay, need to change this up. Um, we, again, we continued doing a variety of different ministries. Then we started going overseas. A group, some groups went down, some of you were involved with it, going down to Brazil and doing some of the miming. We went over to, took a group over to Romania. Some of you remember this one. This was a church in Romania that a fellow built the church on land he didn't own. 
but he wanted to see a church get started. So he built the church, and in, in that, that phrase, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So he built on somebody else's property, but then they couldn't tear it down, so they sold it to him. And he said, we need a church. So Sam Sobodian uh, contacted and said, hey, do you want to do a mission? Well, it was through a variety of different people. Now I was working with Sam. Um, and so we went over to Romania, and some of you are involved that we did uh, children's ministries in this village while some of our team was up in the mountain doing VBS. Several of us were in the village. We didn't know that in this village it was mostly gypsies. And so we found out that during the course of the week that we were in danger, but the Lord was very gracious. Then in 96, we started the different reenactments that a number of you have been involved with over the years as another outreach tool. We did some of this outdoors. We did some of this indoors. We did it in a variety of spots. By the way, this whole scene is the old kitchen. And looking through that little... That little window. That was one of our scenes because we didn't have enough facility to do these things. And so um, we were very limited in what we could do as far as numbers. And we even did some Easter reenactments during the course of some of those early years. And then we started, I decided that we could do camps on site, that we could do a variety of them. And around that time, in the year 1999, we needed a, a facility. We were outgrowing. In fact, the family center was our church auditorium, and we had an overflow room, the old fellowship hall, became an area where we would put uh, TV monitors over there that people could watch the service by sitting in another room because we were so full and so we thought we needed a new building. So we built it on to, uh, to this, this auditorium. We got that constructed uh, during that period of time and that went up and uh, that thing came in and this is the one that I tell you that it was seating and the architects and everything designed the the sound, the seating, and the seating ended up being at 666, and we changed it uh, by a couple. The old auditorium, then we demolished, and we, cha- we took out the pews, and uh, a number of us spent a week in the evenings that what we would do is we did all the pews up in the balcony are from the, from the uh, old auditorium. These are all new on the main floor, but all those up there we just did ourselves and recovered and redid and uh, took from what was in the, old, the uh, other building because they were 22-foot pews. Uh, and so they were able to be cut up and used, some of them. And so eventually that became what we see now as the family center with the kitchen area. The auditorium was completed. And over the years we've had a variety of different assistants. I don't have everybody's pictures up there uh, just because I haven't had pictures that I've taken in the last few years. So some of the more recent fellows aren't up there, including my brother and some others. And so it's been a blessing that the Lord has given us a variety of people. But within this new sanctuary and that, that growth there, we just continued and Pastor Binkley directed that we did a lot of parade outreach. We did more and more with our missions conferences, did more trips around different places. And then this section down this hallway we built on in uh, 2008. Micah had just joined us. His first week of work here, I had him sanding railings and painting. And he told me at the end of the week, he said, I didn't know ministry was like this. I thought ministry was like studying God's word and praying. It was like, it'll, you'll get there eventually, Micah. Um, but uh, it, was good, it was good preparation for being in the country of Georgia. That's what I still tell them. Um, so we ended up doing that. Now, now, just to embarrass a few of you that you can, you know, over the years we've had a variety of different people who have changed as much as I have in their looks and their appearance. And uh, families have grown. And I don't want to do too many because I don't want too many of you mad at me. But um, we, uh, we've been blessed by you folk and by what you have contributed. God has been very good to our ministries. 
question that I get asked frequently is why do we call ourselves Faith Baptist Church? Well, we called ourselves Faith for a reason. Is The reason we took Faith originally back in 79 was we wanted something descriptive of the people who had Faith to keep the work going even though there were so many uh, obstacles against them. So Faith seemed very, very appropriate. And uh, the word Baptist we took for another reason. Okay, if we were to, and we have, to use different, different descriptions. Let me see if I, can, if I can back it up and do it this way. If you were to walk in a store, and there's all the canned goods that are there, what helps you to pick out what you want? The labels. The labels are very... Can you imagine if that whole road there had no labels whatsoever? And there was nothing marking it. You would just be going randomly, and you would have surprise casserole. Be really surprised. Um, and some of you remember years ago that in Regeneration Reservation, they would go to those food uh, banks, and that's how they would grocery shop at times. They would rip off all the labels of some of these cans, and they would just grab them, and you never know what you're getting on the inside of the can until you open it up. And so labels are important, even though we, we don't like them. Okay? Most of us react and say, I don't like to have labels. Labels are important to help distinguish who and what you are. They're not an evil thing. In fact, Jesus, even in the New Testament, talks about those who would be of the way. We have the idea that they were called Christians because they were Christ-like ones. Labels help identify people. So when we started, started the church, we said, okay, what identifies us? And we had this on the original sign for a number of years. It's still on some of our publications and promotions that it describes us. And we use three different labels that help give a basic description of who we are. And we'll call ourselves Dispensational Fundamental Independent Baptists. All those terms have a very, very significant meaning. The idea of dispensational is very important, especially in modern day. This is becoming, uh, dispensations is becoming the, the uh, seems like the dinosaur of theology all of a sudden, which surprises me. It's our method of interpreting the Bible, that we have a literal approach to interpreting Scripture. So dispensational defines where we are in a theological sense, that how we look at Scripture. We look at it in a literal sense as, as, as is, you know, the common sense, plain sense, what it, we take it as literally as possible. When we talk about fundamental, this is a historic term that defines our view of the Bible, that we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It's a very conservative position. Uh, and so that, that term has significance. That it's worth a whole study to just give the history of fundamentalism and conservatism. But I, I don't have time for that. The independent Baptists, that idea gives an idea. Independent, obviously, is, is clear. You all understand that, that we're independent. We do our own thing. But when we talk about Baptists, it helps define how we practice the Word of God, our polity policies, practices. Okay, and so those terms are very important. Those terms just didn't show up one day. They have a historical background. In fact, let me just bore you with, with I hope not, but some of you will be bored. This is very important to understand our, our, um, our, his, our theological ancestry. Okay, that... Uh, some will say this. There are some groups that walk out. They say, we are Baptists because we are named after John. Okay? That, that's just not true. That's not true. That's, that's being, you know, um, erroneous and dishonest with Scripture. There weren't people called Baptist when John the Baptist was walking around. There wasn't a Baptist church at that point. 
Okay, there's, when we start talking about these terms, we remember that when the church first started in the book of Acts, it, did, it had difficulties. There was persecutions. There was ten major persecutions from the emperors within 300 years. And this has real, real importance to what, how we understand church history. There was doctrinal corruption. Right away, people were coming in and they were giving all kinds of uh, false teachers, were infiltrating, they were giving doctrinal problems. If you go through every epistle, he's dealing with it, except for a couple of them, he's dealing with people coming in and giving false teachers giving false ideas, creating confusion. And some churches swallowed it up and they went off to the deep end. Others were trying to resist and Paul's dealing with them and John writing to the seven churches in Revelation is trying to warn them about this doctrinal confusion. And it came in different forms. Okay, There was the there was those who were blending faith and works. There was those who were saying the clergy is better than the people and are closer to God. There was those who were saying that they have special revelation and, and knowledge that others don't possess. And then very early on, there was those who started what's called baptismal regeneration, that you complete your salvation by being baptized, or if you get somebody baptized, that saves them. Well, those who started holding to that, it started going from, okay, I want to baptize Barb to make sure she's saved. Well, then it just naturally, Barb would say, what about my grandkids? Well, if salvation say, or baptism saves me, what would you want with your grandkids? You would want them baptized, even how little? Just babies. And so all of this started, this corruption just dominoed. And there was very early in church history a centralized church government that started pulling away and saying, hey, we're in charge and you need to listen to me and not be an independent church. And one of those that contributed to this was Constantine the Great. He's a historical character, but man, did he make impact into church history. Up, he is around 300. I'm giving you very broad terms, uh, figures. He's around 300 AD. Up to that point, the Christians were being persecuted. The lions going into the catacombs, all those different stories. The, he comes on the scene, and he has a major battle, and he unites the Eastern and Western uh, Roman Empire. And what he wants to do is unite people, and there's that old legend that says he was, uh, he was opposing the Eastern king, and he saw a vision in the sky, and it was the words that, you know, in this sign you shall conquer, and there's a debate whether it was a cross or it was the, the cross with a P look at the top. Um, and so he goes in, and what he did historically impacted the church just dramatically. He made Christianity legal. He stopped imperial persecutions. He noticed that in the empire, some of the scholars and some of the best-read people were, were now either the philosophers and the Greeks or the, or the Christians. Because as the Christians wanted to study the Word of God, they would learn to read. And as a result of learning to read, they would just, all of a sudden, they would move up in the, in the society as a whole. They're all of a sudden becoming more and more important in the area. And he looked and thought, hey, a lot of these uh, in our educated populace are born-again people. They're, or Christians, I should say. And so he looked and said, practically speaking, I want the more educated people to be in positions of leadership in the government. So he legalized Christianity... And he started moving a lot of the church leaders into government positions. 
And then what he did is he restored all the churches that had been taken. And in order to keep control over the empire, he said Christianity is a legalized religion. And, and in, to, make the, to make this government work better, let's bring everybody under one religion. And he chose Christianity to be the mainline denomination for everybody. And then in order for him to control, he started subsidizing and started paying the preachers rather than the churches paying the preachers. Okay, if the government is paying the preacher what to preach, the government is going to tell them what to preach, right? Okay, and so all of this started escalating, and what happened is he looked and said, I'll build my empire around, around a religious thought, and we'll do schools. And so you know, he started to basically the hierarchical system that happened in churches. This is really important for our ancestry spiritually. And so there's this growth. And he started several of these, um, what they call church councils. And they met together. And some of these major church councils, they were saying, okay, we're supposed to be refuting things. But in time, the church councils started allowing doctrinal corruption. Yes, Yes, they helped, they helped to, stand, to say out loud, these are the books that are commonly and widely accepted as Scripture. Yes, the deity of Christ is what, we, you know, what everybody is, is believing and we're confirming. But there was other things that over a period of time were introduced into these councils that became an authority to themselves. In fact, what happened is it organized into a, into a, a church, a denomination. This was the roots and the beginnings of what we know as the Roman Catholic Church which dominated Europe at that time, the Western civilization uh, that we have historic ties to. And so this organization with an emperor at the top and then his henchmen, they started bringing everybody under the rule of, and it just came to be the, the bishop of Rome just rose to the top just by nature of the, the logistics of everything since... Constantine was ruling out of Rome as well. And so then they started something. These are very important corruptions. They started saying that to be a member of the state, you have to be a member of the church or vice versa. And so they started what's called state religion. State religion systems are very, very dominating. It's, it's, you know, if, citizenship, if, if you disagree with the church, not only can you be kicked out of the church, but then you can also lose your what? Your citizenship. And you can be called up for treason or being a traitor. Okay, so at this time in history, this was critical. When, when you guys talk about it, every time we'd have a group coming to Portugal, you would talk about it, it's a state religion. And people don't understand from America, we don't understand that a state religion means it dominates life. So this was all started back with Constantine, that he developed a state religious system and Christianity was the religious system. Just like the previous emperors, if you didn't follow and say that Caesar was the king, you could lose your life. Now it reverted that if you didn't follow Christianity, you could lose your life. So everybody now is a Christian. Well, if everybody is now a Christian, what does that do to the idea of you must be born again? You don't need it. Because the church will get you into heaven. And in order to be part of the church, you're going to end state, you just, you just do whatever the church tells you to. And so that just, oh man, I mean, you're talking about ripping the heart out of the gospel message. They also then developed a whole system that said, more important than anything else, clergy, councils, hierarchy is going to tell you what to believe. 
not the Bible. That's even true today in a number of denominations. In a number of denominations, it's not the Bible first and foremost for theology. It's what? The synods, the councils, the pope, or whatever the local group, whatever the authority they want to claim. And so Bible all of a sudden starts going further and further down. Though it might be saying we believe the Bible, there's a lot of churches that say we believe the Bible. But does that mean the Bible is their authority? Not necessarily. And then baptismal regeneration, even infants were getting baptized, which makes perfect sense because you want the infant to become part of the state and to come under the protection of the state, so let's get the kid baptized right away. And so all these things were happening. And there was, you know, and, and, and if you look at that, as a Bible believer, would that cause you some consternation? If you were a biblicist, would you say, I don't believe in infant baptism, I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. I don't believe that the church should be telling, the state should be telling the churches what to believe. I don't believe that the biggest authority is some preacher. I believe it's the word of God. Well, where are you going to go to church? And, and by the way, if you started a group, what would you be called? A traitor? Okay. Heretic is going to be the term used for you because you're not part of the mainline group. Well, that's what happened here, is all of a sudden there's a group of people during this time period that say, we don't agree with this. We believe the Bible. Now, they go by a variety of different names. If you start reading their history for these next few hundred years, they have a variety of different names, and they show up in history, and yet they have common beliefs. They're not all the same. They're not all like you and me. Okay, but there are some commonalities. Some of them were Pentecostal. Okay, some of them had some other weird beliefs. Okay, but that doesn't mean that they that they were totally off the wall. And by the way, when you read about these people, who's writing the history at this time? The mainline church. So, what is the mainline church going to present about these people? In a good light or a bad light? They're going to present them in a bad light. They're going to present them, and they're going to start off saying, this heretical group. Why? Because, the, because these people are independent of the mainline church. But they have common beliefs, common core beliefs. They basically believe the authority of the Bible, that you need to have born-again church membership, that it's not just everybody, it's those who are saved, those who get baptized. Oh, by the way, according to the state... Okay, and according to culture at that time, how many of us would have been baptized as babies? Everybody. Everybody. Now you grow up and you get exposed to a word of God and you say, I want to get baptized. Again, you are rejecting your infant baptism, which means you are rebaptizing or anabaptism, which a lot of these then get fall under the group, the title Anabaptist. They were baptizing again. They were against the, the infant baptism. And so these people are preaching and teaching, stay away from the world. Now, we don't know much about these people because they're not writing their own history. We don't know about them for another reason. They didn't want to be known. Does that make sense? If you were the persecuted group, where would you go? Underground. And how much publication would you want? None. None. So what we're piecing together historically is just that. We're piecing together history. 
from some writings, from some things. And so we don't know all of their history, but we know that as this was going from 300s up into the 11, 1200s, there was these various groups that were being persecuted by the mainline church at that point. Uh, I want to show you something that, that um, this is going to be contrary to what the, way, the way most history is presented. Um, you know, I don't believe historically that I'm, a, I'm out of the Protestant group. Okay, when people say, where's your history, I, I, don't, I don't class us as Protestants. And there's a reason why I do that. And it's based because it's a different view of history. You all know that in the Reformation, and all of a sudden you had the Lutherans, and you had you know, Martin Luther, you had John Knox, you had a number of these people standing up, and they were saying, let's get back to the Word of God, and challenging the Catholic Church. And so here's the way most, most history courses, this is the way they present our church history. Good churches in the book of Acts, then there was the development of the Catholic Church with Constantine and then following generations that it grew, grew, grew until all of a sudden there was, you know, papal authority, papal authority just you know, controlling kings and governments. In the 1400s, all the way back to the 1200s, there was people in England trying to get the word of God out, being persecuted, you know, burned at the stake, Huss and Wycliffe, all these different individuals. Around 1500, then all of a sudden it comes to a head. And you have the theses that Martin Luther pounds on the door. You have other groups that they make a visible break. And they start their own groups that are now broken from or protesting against what the Catholics were doing at that time. And then there's the idea that, okay, out of the Protestant Reformation came a number of really good biblicists. Not all of these people who protested the Catholic Church were going back to the Bible. Some of them just changed the authority from the Catholic Church to their, their own selves. And so what happens here is there's history says, you know, all of a sudden these independent Bible-believing churches, they showed up again after the Protestant Revolution. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all from the Word of God. But this is the common core history. In other words, Bible-believing churches were lost for a period of time that they didn't exist. And they came back out of the Reformation. I can't buy that historically in that view because of Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said these words, I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will what? See, I don't, I don't believe the church ever died. I don't believe the true church ever disappeared. I believe there's a different view of church history. I believe that there was all these different groups, these independent groups, the Paulicians, the Donatists, the uh, Mon Montanists, you, whatever terms you want to give them. They were in existence, and they were paralleling some of the growth of the Catholic Church through a period of time. They continued on. And then with the Protestant Reformation that came on, then there was a split in the Catholic Church, and different groups started. Out of that, some more of these independent churches, some people who protested, they did come up and they joined into the ranks of those who were biblicists. But in my point of view, independent Bible-believing churches always existed. They never went away during that, that area of the Dark Ages. There was something. They, their terms, their names, they are now, historically, they are called Anabaptists, is the common name. And so that there was all these different groups. There was never a loss for a witness and a Bible-believing church in history. Never. And so they were always existing. But what happened is that some came, but that's why I don't think our history is, we're not Protestants. 
We didn't come out of the Protestant Reformation. Our spiritual ancestry goes all the way back to the Anabaptist movements that came from the early church on. Now, with that in mind, let's go a little bit further. So some of these independents came to America. We call them the pilgrims. And they come to America because they're searching for religious freedom, so they said. Okay, so they, some of these independents were coming to America searching for religious freedom. But the problem was, when they found their own religious freedom, what did they end up doing? This is... This is yeah. this, is, this is where history goes awry at times, where people don't... don't when they came and, like, the, Pur- the Puritans, when they got in charge of the Massachusetts colonies, wh- what did they allow as far as religious freedom? Nothing. Nothing. Everybody had to become a Puritan. Okay? So they became, they just changed locations and changed in authority. And so, in fact, of the original 13 colonies that we talk about in America, prior to the 1889, when we adopted the, uh, 1789, when we adopted the, uh, con- the um, uh, Bill of Rights and the Constitution, prior to that point, there wasn't religious freedom in America. Every, ch- every colony, except for one, every colony had its own state church. They were persecuting the independents. The Methodists and the Baptists were some of the most per, uh, uh, biggest groups that were persecuted by Virginia and some of these other colonies. And everybody had to go and belong to the Anglican Church and pay taxes, whether you went or not. There was only one colony that allowed for religious freedom of everybody. Do you know which one it was? Rhode Island, who founded it. Roger Williams, who he founded it, and his, his choice of church... He was a Baptist, okay, historically. And so he founded it. And so what we have is then in the 1700s, there's this great awakening. Some of the independents really got busy, and a lot of them were the Methodists and the Baptists, got extremely busy, and they started sharing the gospel. And there was this great awakening that happened in America. And as a result, more and more freedom, uh, these groups became to a point they wanted to become independent. They wanted to start their own churches and not be controlled by a state church. And then with the, the Bill of Rights and all, then there was this freedom. And so these groups grow. I'm saying all this because we have a history that some people will say, well, let's, let's not bring up titles. We have a history that's a rich history, okay? And, I, and, and I'm not ashamed of saying that I'm of a, a Baptist persuasion, okay, at all. And that's because historically this Baptist idea, now some churches may not call themselves Baptist, but they're Baptistic. What are those Baptist distinctives? What are they? I'm going to I'm just list them off very quickly. Historically, those independents who called themselves Baptists believe that the Bible is the sole authority. In other words, the belief is this, is that the Bible is it. We don't go by other ecclesiastical groups, creeds, or confessions of the faith. We hold to the Bible as being our sole authority because we believe it's accurate and it's authoritative. That all scripture is given by the word of God and it is profitable so that you and I can be thoroughly finished unto good works. We follow the word of God. That's historically when people would say by label, I'm Anabaptist, I'm Baptistic. That was one of the defining marks in church history is that, oh, this group, they're Bible believers. They're biblicists in that sense. Another one is a saved, regenerated church membership. What we mean by that is that church members, people who come in, need to be born again. This concept of, of church membership is not a right. 
It's not passed on from parent to child to a family history. It's got, it comes by an individual accepting Christ as their Savior, and then as they understand, they get born again, they get baptized, and they make the personal choice of yoking up with the church. And that church membership has responsibilities and privileges that go with it, okay, and to the point that you could lose that church membership. It's not an inherited uh, uh, situation. It's not something that, that you automatically get. So the Baptists historically believed in the Bible. They believed in a saved, regenerated uh, church membership. They held to immersion of believers historically. They're the group that would say, okay, we believe by immersion only, that this immersion is for believers only, that it is for all believers, no infant baptism. Infant baptism isn't even baptism. It's just you got, you got the baby wet. Uh, it's not biblical baptism. Every believer should be baptized. And see, I get this, asked this question, what if somebody was not baptized by a Baptist? Because there are some groups that say, unless you can go back and trace that you got baptized by somebody who was a Baptist, who was a Baptist, who was baptized by a Baptist, it isn't real. I don't, I don't hold to that. I hold to this, that if you were immersed, and in your immersion the mode was proper and the presentation of what's happening was done right, you were biblically baptized. Okay? I don't care if it's a creek or if it's in you know, something like this. But if it was presented right, the method was by immersion, and it was presented that this is not your salvation, but this is rather your testimony. Then it's biblical baptism. And so Baptists held to that historically. They held to priesthood of the believer historically. Priesthood of the believer basically says you don't need a priest you can go to God without me being your mediator because you have who as your mediator? You have Jesus Christ. You can go and you can make your own confession of sin. Understand how that plays in light of what the Catholics were teaching. How that plays that you don't... Because, now, think this through. If, I, if we were of the doctrinal persuasion... We're not. If we were the doctrinal persuasion, you needed me to be the conduit of your forgiveness... Who do you have to keep in good standing with? Think this through. Think this, the logic of this. Not the, forget, forget Bible truth for just a second. If, I, if, if we hold and we teach, in order to have forgiveness, in order to go to heaven, you need forgiveness of sin. But forgiveness of sin comes through me. Okay? You can't go to God directly. So who do you have to be listening to at all times? Me. Otherwise, I can withhold your forgiveness. The Baptists say, no, 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 no. You can go to God on your own. That's a, that wasn't historically preached in most denominations. And so that's huge. And so soul liberty, you can make to your standards based. The autonomy of the church is we believe in independent churches. What we mean by that is that the churches, they govern themselves. There isn't this hierarchy telling them who their pastor is, what they need to pay, what they need to do. But we're supposed to take care of ourselves. We take care of our own bills. We police ourselves. We determine our own choices. That's independent churches, autonomy of the church. We also historically would hold two ordinances, the two ordinances being communion, Okay, and baptism, and if you understand, those are not sacraments, means of getting forgiveness. Rather, they are, they are memorial services reflecting and looking back on what Christ has done, and there's only two of them. Okay, and they are not for private practice. 
Like in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you come together, when you come together. Communion is not to be done at your homes and privately. It's supposed to be a church ordinance, a church practice. Two officers, there are pastors and deacons. There's only the two that are listed in the New Testament. And uh, elders, bishops, pastors, teachers, that's all one in the same office. Okay, uh, that will give you that, that data next week. And then separation of the church. For the Baptists, historically, they believe in this idea of separation, that you're separated from the world, because that's biblical. You're separated from other false religions. Okay, we need to be independent, not try to, to work within or protest what's going on. We separate totally. You need to be separate from errant brothers, but also you need to be separated from the state. The state should not be telling us what to do, what to believe. And so you put that all together... And here's what you end up with to keep it simple. And I use the titles to help you out. That this is the distinctives historically. Bible, sole authority, autonomy, the local church, priesthood, two ordinances, immersion, saved, two officers, separation from the world. We believe those are core doctrines. If you aren't understanding this as core doctrines, and you're here and you're saying, well, I'm part of this church, but I don't know if I buy all this. This is where we're at. This is what we believe. These are our foundational core doctrines. That's why it's important for us to take a moment and reflect and say, is this what you believe? Because that's what this church holds to. Okay, and it's very important that we're on the same page. I've got to stop and get ready for our worship time. Thanks for listening. Next week we'll get into Scripture more than history.